Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Love Wednesdays, and I hate Wednesdays. As uh, I'm not, uh, this might come as a little bit of a surprise to you, but I'm not uh, by nature a super organized plan ahead guy. Uh, and so when I say I, I love Wednesdays, I hate Wednesdays, yeah, Sundays, I always know where I'm going. So I never sweat Sundays. Even though I might not know exactly what I'm saying, I know about where I'm going to be. Wednesdays, it's back and forth, it's all over the place. Uh, and there's times when I've got a good idea at the beginning of the week and I can't wait to get to Wednesdays. And there's many times where uh, Wednesdays at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm still praying, thinking, Lord, what are you doing, man? You've got a whole Bible here you could lay on me. What's, what's the deal? Uh, and, uh, and I was reading... Uh, a little bit yesterday and today, and, and I thought, well, you know, it's Wednesday, never a big crowd there. How important does it have to be? So I decided to talk about the last days. <laughs> I'm being a little bit facetious. Are you excited, Nancy? <laughs> She's, she asked me about uh, once a month, well, how, how long is it going to be before we get to Revelation? We're not going to be in Revelation night, but we are going to be in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, because Wednesday nights, again, it's not, it's, not, uh, it's not written in stone, but we're in the Gospels, or we're in Psalms, or we're doing a healing service usually on Wednesday night. So spend some time in the, some time in the Gospels, because as we went through the Gospels on Sunday mornings, we kind of went through a little bit quickly, two or three Sundays per Gospel, since they were all telling the same story, and figuring, you know, Jesus is at the center of this. We're never going to stray too far from his teachings. Uh, well, we're never going to stray far from his teachings, but I mean, we're never going to stray far from his life. We're always going to refer back to the Gospel. For instance, uh, this past Sunday when we were talking in 1 Corinthians about what Paul had to say about marriage, you know, he talked, he, when he talked about marriage and divorce, he just said, don't do it. He said, don't leave, don't leave your husband, don't leave your wife. Well, Jesus himself, we had to balance that against what Jesus said, who said, except in cases of infidelity, all right? And we know that Paul's not going to contradict Jesus. So we always refer back to the Gospels for things like this. And uh, here in Matthew 24 is one of the most important passages in the Word of God about the end of days, the last days, the return of Christ. And that Matthew 24, the book of Daniel, some passages in Ezekiel and Revelation, of course, is where we get the, uh, the bulk of our last days theology. But this is super important because it's from the mouth of Jesus himself. And so uh, by way of introduction, in the middle chapters of Matthew's gospel, we, we read several encounters that Jesus had with the scribes and the Pharisees and uh, perhaps a little less frequently, the Sadducees. You remember the scribes were the pure scholars. We might, I mean, maybe the modern-day equivalent might be the uh, critical scholars, people who loved to just study and write, but they had no particular pastoral oversight duties, no priestly duties. They just were experts on the law. Uh, Pharisees were sort of the conservative wing of Jewish religious society. They were uh, numerous, they were respected, they were religious, they were also legalistic. They were very public in their religious displays. Uh, and I gotta be really honest, I don't know if I mentioned this when we were in the Gospels. Uh, many times, you know, when we read in the Bible about how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees and how blind they were, and we're gonna look at a little bit of that today, or tonight, uh, sometimes we just shake our head and say, how could they have been like that with Jesus? I have to be super honest. If I were living in that day, my biggest concern is that I would have been a Pharisee. I probably would have been more inclined to the Pharisee sect 
than anything else just because of their careful adherence to uh, the law and the word. But they, they did it to a fault. I mean, I'd like to believe, I, I'm saying, if I were going to be an error, that's probably the error I would slide into, conservative Phariseeism uh, rather than a Sadducee or, or a uh, scribe. Uh, I'd like to believe I'd be among his disciples. But if I were going to miss it, I would probably miss it as a Pharisee. Uh, the the uh, Sadducees, of course, we, we've talked several times about how they didn't really, they weren't inclined to believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were the liberal religious Jews, all right? They were uh, very well respected in society. They were also the ruling class. They probably had the majority on the Sanhedrin, the, uh, the high Jewish court, the high priest. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. Uh, so in these, like I said, in these middle chapters, there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of uh, incidents where they, they began conversations with Jesus. Jesus would refer to them, and they would many times come to him with questions, and they would couch it in these very, uh, uh, they were being very disingenuous, but they were flattering. Oh, teacher, we know that you uh, know all things. We know that you're a great man of God, so can you tell us this? But all they were, trying to ever, all they were ever trying to do was trap him, trying to catch him in something so they could say, aha, and he always knew it. You know, the Pharisees, for instance, would question him about taxes. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes? And, uh, you know, Jesus was a little bit in the corner there because if he said no, then, then the Sadducees uh, uh, would have an occasion to accuse him before the Roman government. But if he said yes, he'd be very unpopular with the people. You know how he responded. Bring me a coin. Whose image is this? Caesar's. Then give it to Caesar. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give God what belongs to God. Whose image is stamped on you, right? So then the Sadducees would come up to him and say, uh, yeah, uh, we've got a problem since you, uh, you know, this whole resurrection. We're considering this resurrection thing. Uh, there was a woman, she, uh, she had a husband and he died. And, you know, the law of Moses says that... Uh, if a husband dies before he gives his wife children, then his brother is supposed to marry her. Well, he had six brothers, and they all, they all married her, and they all died one by one. And then finally she died. So here's the question. Since you believe in the resurrection, and since we're considering it, I'm paraphrasing here, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Thought they had him trapped. And Jesus said, you don't understand Scripture or the resurrection. The answer is, in heaven, they are neither married nor given in marriage. They're like the angels. You know, the Sadducees, were, to, to, to be a little blunt, they, they were kind of coming at him with the very Mormon idea of the resurrection. Marriage and family is forever. And Jesus said, no, it's a different world there. He said, but since you're throwing this idea of Scripture at me, let me, let me ask you this. You know as well as I do that uh, uh, God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Are they dead or alive? And is God the God of the dead or the God of the living? They couldn't answer him. And finally, a little bit later, he asked them, let me ask you something. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, well, it's David's son. And, and, and uh, Jesus said, well, then why does David call him Lord? And it said, after that, no one dared question him anymore. He shut him up. But this has been going on. We see this. Again, there are scattered conversations, but you see a concentration of them there in Matthew 22, 23, and then uh, Matthew 21, 22. And then 
uh, he, in Matthew chapter 23, we get this chapter-long, blistering rebuke of the scribes and Pharisees. It doesn't mention the Sadducees specifically. I kind of think he was including them. And it says he was speaking to his disciples. But everything he says, this whole chapter, and I'm not going to read it for you. We're already going to read a whole chapter tonight, but I'm not going to read this whole chapter. Uh, But everything he's saying, woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, saying it to them. Now, he could have been speaking to his disciples only and speaking sort of about the scribes and Pharisees. I cannot help but believe there were several scribes and Pharisees in the congregation at that moment. All right? But he goes after them. And there's nothing subtle about it. Nothing. He calls them hypocrites. Blind, fools, serpents, brood of vipers, murderers, and sons of hell. That's probably my favorite one. When he says, you scour the world for one proselyte, one convert. And when you find him, you take him and you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. I can probably afford to stray here just a little bit, long enough to say, you know, this is one of my favorite arguments against those who say, well, we need to be more like Jesus and just be loving and tolerant and accepting of everybody. Yeah, let's be more like Jesus and just go out and call somebody a son of hell if we think they're a son of hell, right? So anyway, he goes after them for their hypocrisy, for their misplaced priorities, for their greed for their ostentatious religious performance, all while neglecting to love their neighbor. There's an interesting bit in there where he says, oh, it's one thing if they swear by the altar. You don't take that seriously. But if they swear by the gold that's on the altar, suddenly that matters. And what he's talking about, it's interesting. Man, if, if you have time, and I understand, man, not, my job is to study this stuff out. But if you ever, you know, you got some devotional time, you're not sure where to go, click on some of these online commentaries. Uh, study light will just give you a, 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 a verse by verse. They'll give you 10 or 12 different uh, commentaries from different guys, scholars you've heard of in many cases. And you see what, what people say about this. And uh, it's interesting because the overall case that Jesus is making is one that, you know, well, if you look in the Message Bible, for instance, which I consider more of a commentary than I do a true translation, but it's still worth reading. But he, he, he phrases it like this. Peterson says, you know, oh, you think it's okay as long as you've got your fingers crossed behind your back, then your vow doesn't mean anything. And I do think that's one of the things Jesus is saying. But he keeps referring, he refers to the gold. He refers to, to the, uh, the guilt, G-I-L-T, guilt. Uh, he says, oh, that's when it matters. And, and when I read that, and I only found one commentator that backed me up, but I still stand by it. Uh, I think what he's saying is, oh, well, when you, when you, make, a, when you make a commitment but you went off the hook, they'll let you off the hook unless you make a commitment with your money. Then they're like, no, no, that was a vow, vow before God. You've got, you got to fulfill that one. And so he's ta- I mentioned that because he accuses them of their greed. But he wraps it up like this. We'll finally look at something specific here. In Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 29, Jesus says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, which he's said many times already, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. And this, by the way, is the verse that makes me wonder. You know, it's like, well, if we'd lived back in those days, we would have been a, we would have been a uh, John or a James or a Peter. We wouldn't have been a Pharisee. 
but these are, you know, these, these are the Pharisees, and they read about the prophets, and they're like, oh, our fathers, how could they have treated the prophets like that? And this is what Jesus is saying. We lived in the days of our fathers. We have not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. I love what he says here. You're saying that you're so much wiser and so much more pious and so much more godly than your ancestors who you admit were murderers. They murdered the prophets. You wouldn't do it. So Jesus says, I'm going to give you another chance. I'm sending more prophets, more wise men, and you just watch. You're going to murder them too, including himself, the ultimate prophet. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who stones the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, uh, chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Well, he, he was there. They were just kind of like, look at this. Isn't it beautiful? Look at the here's This was the, the temple that Herod had built for them. It was, a, it was a marvel of architecture. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, Jesus had said, we see this in the book of John where he talks about, I'm able to destroy this, you can destroy this temple and I can raise it up in three days. And it specifically says he's talking about the temple of his body. Here he's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. This whole thing is going to come crumbling down. It's going to be a pile of rubble. And verse 3, now as he sat down, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Now this is an important series of questions, so listen. Saying, tell us. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It is super important, if you are going to begin to make sense of the rest of this chapter, to understand that he is answering three separate questions. He just said, this temple is going to be a pile of rubble. And they said, when is that going to happen? And what's going to be the sign sign of your coming? And when's the end of the age, or the sign of the end of the age? Three separate questions. And there are going to be three answers that, unfortunate for us as students, I don't want to say unfortunate. God knows what he's doing. Jesus knew what he was saying. What makes it difficult is from verse to verse, from moment to moment, you're not always 100% sure which question he's answering. But don't panic. And I'll tell you why not to panic when we get toward the end of it. But let's read through here. Stick with me as we read this whole thing because I think it's important to see everything in context first before we break it down. Beginning in verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. 
For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. The, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you to tri- up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will, will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by, the, by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor shall ever be, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from from heaven, And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Let's stop there and go back and look at a couple super important Uh, pieces to his answer number one when they said lord when are these things going to happen what's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age the very first thing he said by way of answering them was what take heed that no one deceive you he didn't give him a date he didn't give an event he didn't give him a timeline he just said don't be deceived this was the very first concern and then tells them, and here are some of the things that are going to happen that can possibly deceive you. Uh, primarily, false prophets, false Christs. You know, there are people today, you can look these guys up, there are people following men in this world 
simply because they claim to be the returned Jesus. And, we're, and we can absolutely know they're wrong because of what we just read in this chapter. You know, sometimes you wonder, well, man, seems crazy to me, but you wouldn't want to miss it if it is him. We can know it's not him. Jesus tells us exactly how. If you missed it, we'll get back to it. When, verse 6, when he says, you'll hear of wars, rumors of wars, uh, and he talks about the earthquakes and this stuff. I, I really believe what he's saying is not necessarily that this is last day's stuff. He's saying these things are going to happen. This is the human condition. You're going to hear of these things. That's not necessarily a sign of the end. These things must happen. Why? I read about it in Romans. These are, these are the groanings of an earth that is struggling under the weight of sin. But then, in verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. This is the beginning of the end. This, 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 these are the things that we, we see are specifically um, targeted at those who believe. Not, you know, not time-wise. Time he's saying that the, the things of nature, the famine and this stuff, that's all just the result of sin. The tribulation, these are attacks of the enemy. Now, uh, let, let me try to rush through this. Because in, in beginning in verse 15, when he talks about... Um, uh, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, and he talks about fleeing, get out of Judea, don't go back and get your clothes, don't go back and get your stuff. Man, woe to those who are pregnant and nursing. You don't want, to be, you don't want it to be in the winter or on a Sabbath. What's he talking about? I believe in, those, in that passage he's talking specifically about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 A.D. This is in the history books. All right, We know when this happened. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes about it. Uh, when This is when Rome, Rome itself, turned on Judea. They, they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and possibly as many as a million Jews died. One million. And this is 2,000 years ago. And it's interesting because Jesus is saying when it gets like that, you bolt. There's a time to run. There's a time to leave. And now's that time. This is going to happen. Because remember, one of the questions he's asking is, when is the temple going to be destroyed? He just said, this temple is going to turn to rubble. And they said, when's that going to happen? Oh, and what's going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? This passage, I believe he's speaking specifically about the destruction of the temple. When that happens, you run. When you see this, now the abomination of desolation, that's been interpreted a number of ways. Uh, 168 BC, the Maccabees record this happened when Antiochus Epiphanes was standing in the temple. And then, uh, Jesus, I think, is referring here to the Roman army standing in the temple, but there's yet another fulfillment of that prophecy that's going to happen in the last days when I believe the Antichrist is going to stand in that temple. So, uh, the rebuilt temple. Let's, let's uh, race on here, though. I, what I want you to see here in verse 27, Jesus says this, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. This is how we know. Uh, this is one of the things he says about his coming. It's not going to be one of these things that, uh, like his first coming. You know, there were people who knew. There were people who were watching. There were people who were ready. There were people who were spoken to by angels. There were people who were spoken to in dreams, spoken to in the stars. But the first coming of Jesus, that news is still being spread. When, it hap- when he comes the second time, you know, you've all seen this. 
uh, maybe you've seen it recently, we had a heck of a lightning storm a week or so ago. It didn't matter what direction you were facing. You might be looking at clear sky, but if the lightning flashed 10 miles behind you, the entire sky lights up, right? Same thing. It's not a matter of, you know, he's talking about some people are going to say, come over here, we found Jesus. He's in this room. He's in this country. He's in this town. He's in this church. Don't go. Because the second coming isn't going to be that kind of thing. Geography is not going to matter. The entire world is going to see it when it happens. See him when he comes back. Now, when he says in verse 32 about the fig tree, I don't have time to tell you my story again. I don't think it was too long ago I told it. But, you know, he's saying, you know, uh, when the branch has already become tender, it puts forth its leaves, you know, the summer is near. There are people who have uh, taken that and taught, you know, the fig tree always represents Israel, right? And therefore, and this was a very, very popular teaching. What Jesus is saying is uh, he was referring to 1948 when Israel became a nation. And when he says this generation, in verse 34, will by no means pass away till all these things take place. He's saying the budding of the fig tree, I'm not saying this. There are last days ministers who say this. And I'm not saying, well, by this time I guess I am. <laughs> but they're probably wrong. Uh, but the teaching is Israel became a country in 1948. A generation is 40 years. So Jesus is saying a generation will not pass between the time Israel becomes a nation and the second coming. That would have been 1988. And for the pre-trib rapture folks who subtract seven years for the rapture, the rapture was supposed to happen in 1981. It didn't. Or if it did, it was a lot smaller than a lot of people were counting on. Huh? It left a few people behind. Yeah, we're all left behind. I heard a guy say this. Uh, he kind of said it tongue-in-cheek, but I kind of think he meant it. And I don't think I've ever shared this before, so I'll share it now. Uh, this argument about uh, rapture versus second coming. I mean, we know, there's a ra- we, we know there's a second coming. Question is, is there a rapture before the second coming, or is the second coming another term for the rapture? Are we going to be here for the tribulations, what everybody wants to know, all right? Uh, we will address those issues. I know I've kind of danced around them in the past. Uh, we will address them when we get to Revelation, or maybe even Thessalonians, when Paul talks about it. Uh, but here's, here's what somebody said. Yeah, and, and this was a guy who was very, very much a pre-trib guy. He said, uh, you know what the Bible says? Be it unto you according to your faith. If you've got faith, you can go up in the rapture. If you don't have faith for that, you'll be here for the tribulation. Well, let me explain something to you. <laughs> well, let me just say boldly, it's either one or the other. If there's a pre-trib rapture and you're a believer, you're going in the rapture. <laughs> If there's not a pre-trib rapture, all the faith in the world ain't going to get you out of the tribulation. All right? All right. And let me, let me say this also. If you are a dyed-in-the-wool pre-tribber and you are wrong, you are still going to heaven. As long as you stay faithful, as long as you don't deny the faith. And if you are a post-tribber, you are still going up in the rapture if it happens. All right. That's what I think. Now... Most, uh, most uh, let, let me look at this real quick. Because this is really the first big in, in, important question. When he says, when he's talking about the parable of the fig tree, he's saying, the, the, the main message he's saying is, you know how to interpret the times. You look at a fig tree, 
You know what's happening just by looking at its leaves. See what, you see what season it's in. Uh, you need to interpret the times the same way. So also, when you see all these things, you know that it's near. The, uh, that it is near the do- at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, verse 34, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Here's the first really big question is, what is this generation? Is he talking about those who were alive at that time? And I'm giving you the major interpretations of this verse. It's either those who were alive at that time listening to Jesus, or it was uh, the Jewish race, or it was the Christians, or it was all of mankind. All of mankind is the least popular of those options. The, the three overwhelming uh, options are those who were alive listening to Jesus, the Jews, and the Christians. A simple majority, not a supermajority, but a majority of the uh, commentators believe that he's talking about those who were alive and listening to Jesus at that time. And they simply address the difficulty of that by saying, well, he's talking about the destruction of the temple, and most of them were alive at that time. Or a lot of them were. John was, certainly. And we know the names of some of the people who died during the siege of Jerusalem. That makes sense, except for this. Jesus said, this generation will by no means pass till all these things take place. And he's talking about a lot more, clearly, by this point, than the destruction of the temple. So, frankly, I think he's talking about uh, either the Jews or the Christians. And my gut tells me he's talking about the Jewish race because uh, that's one of the most powerful testimonies of God himself. The fact that from the destruction of the temple in 70 AD until 1948, there was no Israel. There was no homeland for the Jews, and yet the Jews maintained a distinct national identity for nearly 2,000 years without a country. No, there's never been anything like that in the history of the human race. Uh, so anyway, again, if I'm wrong, I'm still saved. If you disagree with me, you're still saved. I'm not going to disfellowship you or anything. It's kind of an important question. Uh, it gets better. Let me, let me, let me uh, get to the better and more important here. The most important passage in this chapter, I believe, is verses 36 through 42. We already read it, but he's talking about the, as it was in the days of Noah. And talking about the suddenness of it all. The big question in this important passage takes place in verses 41 and 42 when it says two men will be in the field one will be taken and the other left two women will be grinding at the mill one will be taken and the other left here's the question is it better to be taken or left was one raptured and one left behind the taken one being raptured or was the one taken killed and the other one spared these are the two Basic, there are details in sort of subcategories. And you might be surprised to learn how little agreement there is. I'm talking about big names in scholarship. You agree with Calvin, you're going to disagree with Wesley. You're going to agree with uh, uh, Matthew Henry, you're going to disagree with Barnes. I'll do respect, Jeff Canfield too. I love the guy's scholarship. I'm just saying, there's no scholar that I'm going to look at and say, because they said it, I believe it. It's too easy to miss it on a detail. 
When I say all due respect, I'm not sure where Jeff stands on this particular verse. I'm just throwing him in there to, to lump him in with the great scholars of the age, okay? What if I told you it doesn't matter? I'm serious. Listen to me now, because I really am wrapping this up. What if I told you that Jesus, in these verses, is not discussing the mechanics of the second coming? All he's discussing is its decisiveness, its finality, and its suddenness. What if the rest of the chapter nailed this down? Let me read quickly, beginning in verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Is is the Son of Man comparing himself to a thief who's going to come and steal your stuff? Is that the comparison he's making? No. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in its due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find. In other words, who's the guy the master can leave him in charge of his house and absolutely trust that he's going to take care of everything, that he doesn't have to worry about a thing. It's he's going to come back and find that the household's being run exactly as he would have run it. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods, but... If that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When he gets back, once again, it's not going to take centuries for the word to spread and it is past decision point at that time. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, I don't think we should spend a whole lot of time, especially considering the time and the ink that has already been poured out on this, one left, one taken, which one is which. It doesn't matter. What he's saying is he's coming and people are not going to be ready. They're not going to be expecting it any more than the people in the days of Noah. If you want to look at it, it says in the previous verse, the flood came and took them away. So to be taken away is really the bad one. And then here it says one will be taken, one's left. I don't think we can necessarily uh, decide from that, conclude from that, that, that's what, that, that being taken is the bad one. I'm not anti-rapture. I'm not necessarily in that camp, okay? But I think what he's saying is, here's the main point. You don't know when it's going to happen. Jesus wasn't telling his disciples In fact, he's telling them, this is going to come suddenly. It's going to come unexpectedly. Here's the only smart thing to do. Praise and worship team, come on up here. The only logical response to this is live like it could happen right now. Live ready. If you try too hard to figure, if you are absolutely convinced, we talked about this in a different uh, context. I think if I told you, if somebody could guarantee you, you were going to live to be a certain age, how would you live between now and then? It's best if we don't know, because our tendency, you know, is to live for the now. Well, I know I've got, if I've got 30 years left, that means I can do what I want for 15, and then I'll get really serious for God the last 15, and then when we hit 15 years, well, I can go five more years just kind of squandering this, and I've got serious the last 10, the last five, the last month, because we've got this flesh to deal with. Our flesh wants to just do things and enjoy things. 
And Jesus is like, don't live like that because you don't know when it's happening. That's why I am convinced I don't think we are ever going to absolutely understand Matthew 24 until we're on the other side of it. I believe Jesus, to a degree, was being perf- uh, uh, purposely ambiguous. He didn't want us to know too much because the central point of his message is, you don't know, I ain't going to tell you, only God knows, it could be any time. Wars, rumors of wars, persecution, this has all been happening since the day he ascended. When are the last days? These last 2,000 years have been the last days. All I can tell you is we are one day closer than we were 24 hours ago, and we all need to be ready. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.